I'm Mark Middleton with Bill Schaefer, and welcome back to Growing Boulder, the show that brings you national celebrities, iconic musicians, celebrated authors, renowned health experts, and seemingly ordinary people, all who have done something remarkable with their lives. And we hope that after hearing their stories, you will believe that you can do the same. In just a moment, you'll meet a man who will tell you how to find the fountain of youth in your own backyard. We'll also talk to a former big-time wrestler, Jake the Snake Roberts, about his battle with depression and addiction. And then we'll have an eye-opening talk with researcher Brene Brown, who says the two most important qualities you need for strength and courage are shame and vulnerability. And then we're going to take you out on the open water and ask, what do you think would go through your mind if you were in the middle of nowhere in a canoe day after day after day? This is Growing Boulder. to talk a little television now. We don't have to tell you how it's changed over the last decade or two, especially the news. But it is remarkable that out there somewhere in the middle of this vast ocean of sensationalism (laughs) is a little, well, it's not even a dinghy. I'd say a little raft. And in this homemade lashed-together lifeboat, our next guest, both oars in the water paddling surely and steadily against the stream of noise to bring us stories of substance. How long did it take you to think that up, Bill Schaefer? This guy's been doing it for more than 40 years. He's logged over 4 million miles searching the country to tell the American story. And millions of folks see the results on NBC's Today Show. And now even more are going to discover these treasures in his brand new book. It's called American Story, a lifetime search for ordinary people doing extraordinary things. And we are quite thrilled, folks, to welcome its Emmy Award winning author, Bob Dotson. Hey, Bob, how are you? I'm doing fine. Thank you for having me. Man, thank you for being you. You know, the world of journalism, the industry of television needs guys like you. And and I guess the first thing we should ask is, where in the country are you right now? Right now I'm in a home in a little town called Mystic, Connecticut. Some of your listeners might remember Mystic Pizza, the movie. Oh, yeah. That's where I am. I think that was one of Julia Roberts' first ever films, wasn't it? That's correct. You're right. Hey, you know, it's tough to read the paper or watch the news these days and not get depressed. The news is prolific at finding the worst that humanity has to offer uh, and then presenting it in beautiful, high-definition, you know, over-the-top production values. Uh, Does that bother you? How have you been able to continue to do what you want to do with so many assignment editors and news directors wanting to find the bad? Well, I tell you, you know, I've been very fortunate. NBC has uh, let me travel the world on, on their nickel looking for us. And I, I convinced them years ago, and, I, and I, I constantly remind them that the shortest distance between us is a good story. And the more I get to know you, the better I am in understanding how you are alike. And so if you've got something to solve, then the, you and I can work together because I won't overlook your opinion. So I I started out years ago uh, on the 50th anniversary of the Great Depression. I went looking for a woman who was in uh, that classic photo that Dorothea Lange took called The Migrant Mother, one of the uh, photos that uh, stands out in the 20th 20th century. And basically it was this woman that had children draped all over her. She looked to be maybe 50, and in reality she was 29. She had five kids, was pregnant with another. Her husband had just died, and she had sold a tire on her car for food for her kids and couldn't follow the harvest. She was one of the Okies who went to uh, California. So I found her 50 years later. She had never talked to anybody since then, and she was uh, living in a trailer home in the exact same location that picture was taken. She told me, she said, all of her grandkids were making more in one hour than she made that entire year. And she said, I dragged 100-pound sacks of cotton. I cleaned hospital floors. I tended bar, did everything to keep my family together. And I said, well, did you ever lose hope? looked like in, the, in this great classic Mona Lisa look that she had that she was losing hope. And she said, I rocked back in her chair. And she looked at me and she said, honey, if I'd lost hope, this country wouldn't even be here. Mm. Well, and so it became one of those Shazam moments that maybe what we needed to do was to spend a little more time peering behind the media mirror that reflects pop culture and, and politicians and power to find the people who are actually living the values that we tout and brag about all the time, because that's really the reason that America thrives and survives. And, and I remember the last thing she mentioned as I, I left her trailer home that day. 
she said, you know, it's not really a question of being dealt a good hand in this country. My children complain all the time that they should have been born with more money or better looks or whatever and a better opportunity. But it's not a question of being dealt a good hand, survival. It's playing a bad hand well over and over and over again. And I thought that pretty much summed up the history of this country. I mean, we were all from pioneer stock. All of us, even the Native Americans, were from pioneer stock who wanted something better and were not not afraid to go and try to get it. And despite the, the challenges and the setbacks, they kept moving on down the road. So, you know, it's not just a memoir about, oh, here's Bob and his 40 years of wandering around or a, a lamentation about the way the media has gone today. It really is uh, focused entirely on the wisdom that these folks have uh, have told me through the years that maybe we've forgotten or overlooked because we haven't been asking those questions of late. The problem with overlooking it, Bob, is that it's, it's really hard for people to see, and I'm sure you get asked this question all the time, is how do you spot somebody like that? You didn't know this woman had that kind of story behind her and that kind of wisdom inside her. How do you know when you take a crew and go to interview somebody that, that you're going to get something like that? Well, all my relatives started out as cops, <laughs> and they gave me a great tip years ago. They said, you know, anybody in an interrogation room who speaks first loses because they'll sell you something that uh, you didn't even know and you didn't uh, know enough to ask. So when I go out and do a story, I mean, there may be some reason, for instance, that that I'm going to do the story on the surface. Like, for instance, I did a a piece, uh, which is in the book, about um, a guy on a little island off the coast of Rhode Island uh, who is the state driver's license examiner. And if you're 16 and want a state driver's license, you've got to go see Fred Benson, and he's 90. So on the surface, it's just a funny, ha-ha, kind of feel-good picture stuff. But as we were get, waiting to go back on the ferry, uh, I, I used the technique that the, all my in-laws, the cops, told me. Because uh, I realized that people always answer their questions in threes. They give you the answers you think you've asked for, then they explain it. But if you let some silence build up before you ask the next question, they go, well, dummy, that's why I killed my wife. <laughs> you see, because they figure you didn't know. And so they focus their, their emotions and they tell you, directly. So I was doing exactly the same thing with Fred as we were waiting to get on the ferry. And he looks out at the lighthouse and he looks back at me and he says, you know, I came here as an orphan. Well, I didn't know that. But I didn't stop and jump in with another question. I just listened for a second. And he said, uh, yeah, he says, uh, Gerd Milliken, who is a farmer, brought me here. And one night, on a Saturday night, he was having a party at his house and he pointed a finger down all this long table and he said to his friends and neighbors, he says, you watch Fred Benson and see how he turns out. And I didn't say anything. And then he says, you know, I was the fire chief and the police chief and the head of the rescue squad, and I started the softball teams here in town. And when we switched from a farm uh, economy to tourism, I decided at 54 I'd go to college because I came back and taught shop, and all of the builders who were building the hotels are kids that I, I taught. I didn't say anything. And he says, you know I won the Rhode Island State Lottery, don't you? <laughs> I said, really? Yeah, he said, $5 million. He said, I threw, a, uh, I, th- I threw a little picnic for all the kids on the island, and I told them if they wanted to go to college, I'd pay for it, and I did. I said, Fred, so, do you, do you, you know, you've got this $5 million bucks and stuff. Where, where do you live? And he says, I live in the same room that I moved into when I was eight with the Millikans. And I said, really? And he said, yeah, five generations have grown up around me. So, you know, immediately the camera crew was up with their camera, and we, we got a little bit of that. And, by, and I looked around, and I saw one of the grandkids wandering by, and I said, tell me about this. And she said, oh, yeah, he still lives up there in that same room. It's unheated. We've told him you <laughs> ought to move down someplace in the, you know, near the house, near the rest of us. But he likes that little room. And I said, oh, my God. And about that time, you know, we have all this on camera. Fred looks out, and he looks at the uh, lighthouse, and he looks back. And he's listening to the sound of the uh, foghorn, and he says, I hope Gerd knows how I turned out. Wow. So it turns out, folks, that one of America's best storytellers is, in fact, America's best listener. Uh, uh, Folks, he is Bob Dotson, a national treasure. The book is called American Story. Bob, thanks so much for sharing a moment with us and sharing a couple of stories, and, and best of luck with your new venture. Well, thank you so much.
Coming up next, nutritionist Dr. Susan Mitchell will stop by with a diet that she says is not a fad that can turn your life around. But first, what the view from a canoe can do for you. This is Growing Boulder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by... The Legacy Life Project from Macbeth Studio. Preserving family history, stories, and memories for generations to come by creating personal video biographies of your loved ones. Everyone has a story worth preserving. LegacyLifeProject.com Check out Growing Boulder TV, airing on public television stations nationwide. Visit GrowingBoulder.com slash TV for program listings and where to watch. This is Growing Boulder Radio. I'm Bill Schaefer along with Mark Middleton. And, you know, none of us gets much time to think these days. We're always busy, busy meeting deadlines, fulfilling obligations, running from task to task. Before you know it, the weeks turn into months and the years, and you don't know where the time went. Yeah, that is exactly one of the reasons why Rod Price did what he did. His life, like so many of ours, was racing by, and he felt he was losing control. And maybe that's what led him to the sport of adventure canoe racing. Now, these aren't little sprints across the lake. These are monumental treks that can take days, sometimes weeks. Total solitude out on the water, out in nature, surrounded by silence, and occasionally immersed in the middle of danger. In 2006, I was attacked by about an 11-foot alligator. Uh, in a boat similar to this, I've sold that boat. I figured it wasn't a good luck boat. <laughs> well, boats have been nothing but luck for Rod Price. He's seen the world from the seat of a canoe, from the Amazon to the Yukon. And along the way, he's collected some pretty impressive honors. Price is a canoe adventure racer, and he's won a few. Yes, I've won over 200 canoe races. And those 200-plus victories put him on the path towards living legend status in something few know anything about, a sport that tests the limits of human will and endurance. What do you do for six days or 19 days or 30 days? or What's the feeling when you're out there all by yourself paddling along? Well, you think about everything. You can relieve, relive uh, every instant of your existence. <laughs> talking about it. Having been divorced twice and uh, been in a few uh, committed relationships, I uh, am bound to think about those off and on. <laughs> but uh, one thing that's great about being in the outdoors is uh, all of the uh, little concerns you have about car payments, house payments, how the business is going, they all seem to vanish after about a day or so, and uh, you really enjoy the experience. Let me... Uh, back off here. Woo! That's why I don't like wakes. Wakes are just one of many hazards when racing through the rivers of the world. Another hazard is simply the effort it takes just to get to the finish. It's very basic. Uh, you know, the, the power is provided by you. It's a grueling sport. Whenever I'm giving someone instruction on the proper canoe stroke, I always tell them if it feels hard and grueling, well then you're probably doing it correctly. As a result, there is one essential item to success. I remember about uh, 10 years ago, I bought a big old bottle of generic Advil that had about uh, 300 pills in it. And I thought, well, this will be a lifetime supply. Well, I think I'm on about my fifth bottle of uh, ad uh, lifetime supply of Advil. You're making the sport sound fantastic. <laughs> Some do question whether Price has both oars in the water, but he insists he's found an activity he loves, one that's taken him all over the world, and, he says, one where age is not an obstacle. You could have been a golfer, <laughs> you could have been a jogger, you could have been a cyclist. What the heck are you doing? Uh, well, this is the perfect sport uh, for when you get old. Are you old? No, 51. What is it about this? I like it because it's, uh, it's mainly about power and stamina. And uh, the longer the race, uh, the more strategy and stamina that come into it. You know, you get on a starting line and it's like, let's see what you got for three days. <laughs> do you feel the need to, to test yourself? Is it at, at this age, do you, 
do you keep wanting to prove things to yourself? Oh, definitely. Yep, I, uh, it's not about being the best, it's just about feeling like I've done my best. I know uh, if you get into that uh, contest trying to be someone who's paddled the longest, the furthest, and the fastest, you're going to kill yourself. And there's always somebody that's going to be doing something that makes you look, you know, whatever you're doing look pretty uh, tame. Still, there's no denying he's found an intriguing route to success, something this sport helped him redefine. Yes, it did. Um, instead of measuring success by uh, your income and your material possessions, it's basically doing what you want with your life because life is such a precious commodity. It also helped him realize the things in life that are most important. Well, one thing that's nice, after a week or more out in the wilderness racing, you really do appreciate a cheeseburger and a, uh, a mattress. You do not take things for granted anymore. But now, Price is getting ready for what will be his most ambitious endurance challenge yet. It only takes place once every four years. It is the ultimate Florida challenge. You're about to go 1,200 miles. Yes. How long will that take you? I figured it out. For me to break the record in the 1,200-mile race, I have to average about 66 miles per day. For and 19 straight days? Yes, for 19 days. Well, that's a lot of time to be alone with your thoughts, enough for Rod to write a book called Racing to the Yukon. He realized he could inspire more than just canoers to live their life to the fullest. All he needed was a simple motto to sum it up. And one day I was paddling around after thinking about it a few days and it popped into my head, uh, achievement validates existence. And uh, I guess it ties in there with you know, having a purpose-driven life. That's the, uh, the motto that I trademark and uh, that I stand by. And, it's, uh, and it applies to anything. You know, whatever you're doing, you know, try to achieve something in life. And uh, that helps validate your existence instead of just existing. You know, have something to show for your time here on Earth. Well said. Days and days on the open water, rowing mile after mile. Bill, sounds like a combination of peaceful, painful, and powerful. Oh, yeah, really? I don't know which you'd think more. And interesting, too, where would your mind take you if you had days and weeks virtually alone? What thoughts would you have? Would it make you make changes in your life? Sure would be interesting to have a little clarity like that, wouldn't it? biggest problems with losing weight is there's so many diets out there you don't know which one to try and some of them are just so unusual there's no possible way to keep up with them that's why dietitian and nutritionist dr susan mitchell has been so happy around here lately because there is one diet you can follow that she says will make a difference so true bill what that means is you can take that paleo diet the wheat belly diet whatever you've been on and trade them in on one that's not only clinically proven, but doable, and it's delicious. How does blood orange-infused olive oil or dark chocolate balsamic vinegar sound to you? Makes you want to eat a salad, doesn't it? Here's the clinical part. A study in the New England Journal of Medicine found that the Mediterranean diet, supplemented with a little extra virgin olive oil or nuts, actually reduced the incidence of major cardiovascular events. Now, if you do try the Mediterranean diet, don't feel like you have to switch over all at once or that if you have a cheating day every now and then, it's the end of the world. It took you a lifetime to develop the habits you have now, so be patient with the time it takes you to change those habits. What great advice. Do you worry, though, about this diet? Because we hear them all the time. They come in, and then six months later, everyone's, like, touting something else, and you've forgotten all about this one. You know, not at all, Bill. As a dietitian and nutritionist, I can tell you, the Mediterranean diet works. This is not a fad. It's real food. It's not starvation. You're eating generous amounts of fruit and vegetables, healthy fats like olive oil and avocado. You can even drink red wine or grape juice. The meat you think you have to have over time becomes less and less important when you can choose beans, nuts, fish, whole grains, 
even cheese and yogurt. So instead of feeling like you have to avoid certain foods, instead you feel like you're simply adding more variety. Once you get used to cooking with beans, avocado, all kinds of vegetables, you'll be amazed at how tasty they can be. If you want to live longer and stay healthier, try the Mediterranean diet. You'll feel great. Dr. Susan Mitchell. Coming up, why instead of avoiding them, shame and vulnerability may be the most important qualities you can have. This is Growing Boulder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by the Center for Health and Well-Being, now open in Winter Park. Wholeness, fitness, and medicine together in one convenient location, offering programs and services to promote healthy living and positive aging. More at yourhealthandwellbeing.org. Sign up for the Growing Boulder Insider Newsletter, delivered to your inbox every week. Be the first to see our latest interviews, stories, and tips for making each day count. Sign up today at growingbolder.com. This is Growing Boulder. Hi, folks. I'm Mark Middleton. That guy over there is Bill Schaefer, and you've picked a great time to tune in. We're about to meet someone whose life changed virtually overnight. She's a researcher and a storyteller, the kind of person, though, that usually doesn't get noticed, at least not nationally. But then a talk she made on the website, TED, literally exploded. It's been viewed over 7 million times, and she's just written a powerful new book that's called Daring Greatly that is flying off the shelves. Yeah, don't you? love TED. There are so many great talks on that site on great topics like courage and bravery. They talk about strength and how to win and how to succeed. But Mark, she didn't do any of that. No, she got out and talked about shame and weakness and vulnerability. And for some reason, and believe me, nobody was more surprised than she was, that video has become one of the most watched TED Talks ever. And now we've got her on this program. Let's find out more about why that worked from Brene Brown. Hey, Brene, how are you? Good. I'm so excited to be with y'all. Hi. So, so, so is that accurate? What in the world happened to you? Who knows? <laughs> I think you know, I've been thinking about it a lot. And, you know, here's my conclusion that I don't think I, I think everybody already knew everything I said. I think that. My contribution, hopefully, um, is that I language things in a way where people hear them and have words to explain these kind of universal experiences we have, and they know they're not alone. And I think that's probably the power of it, because the the emails that we get and the calls that I get are just, oh, my God, I feel the exact I, – I didn't know there was a word for that. I didn't know there was a name for that. I didn't know that I, w- I thought I was the only one. You know, and so I think it's really about languaging these really universal experiences that we have that fuel everything, the way we behave, the choices we make. So maybe I think there's something to that piece of it. You must be so ashamed that you did nothing more than that to get all this attention. You really made yourself Ah. vulnerable in that speech. No, that and like, you know, 12 years of research. So it's, it's. It's been weird. It's been, uh, you know, when I was pregnant with my daughter, who's my oldest daughter, who's almost 14, I was walking one day with my husband, Steve, and um, he said, you know, we were talking about how everything would change after our our first child got here and everything. And he said, um, what is your like biggest, loftiest professional goal of your life? And I said, I want to start a national conversation about shame and vulnerability. And he was like, "Oh, that is lofty," um, because you know those things. People, we don't want to, we don't want to talk about that. I know so people to would me, rather has been P- Brene. People would rather you sold pretzels down on the street corner than talk about that. Oh, it's true, and sometimes that's exactly what I feel like I'm doing. <laughs> I feel like I'm standing <laughs> on the soapbox, going, "We really need to talk about this, people." So, so sell us a couple of pretzels, Brene. We don't have time for the whole TED talk, but 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 what's the hook? What what is this universal thing that you've tapped into that we all share? Well, I think the universal thing is this, that, you know, Daring Greatly, which I think is a great metaphor. Daring Greatly, the name of the book is from us. It's a phrase from a speech by Theodore Roosevelt that says, I'll just 
couple of little sentences from it. It's, it's not the critic who counts. It's not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who's actually in the arena, whose face is marred with blood and sweat and dust, who strives valiantly, who fails often, but when he fails, does so daring greatly. And when I read that quote, I thought, this is everything I've ever studied about vulnerability. This is everything I know to be true from my research, that being courageous, being vulnerable is not about winning or losing. It's about showing up and letting ourselves be seen. It's about, you know, being at work while everyone's, you know, in this meeting and talking about something they're super excited about and saying, whoa, God, I think we're on the wrong track even though you're the only one that thinks that. You know, when we asked people, what is vulnerability to you? What are some experiences? They said things like this. Vulnerability is saying, I love you first. It's the, it's the first date after my divorce. It's watching my adult son go through a painful divorce and trying to reach out. It's sitting with my wife who has stage four breast cancer and trying to make plans for our young kids. It is picking up the phone and calling my best friend whose wife just dropped dead of a heart attack. You know, it is starting my own business. It's starting my own jewelry business after I've been an accountant for 30 years and trying to sell my jewelry on Etsy online. We believe culturally there's this powerful mythology that vulnerability is weakness. But in truth, what I found in my work is that vulnerability is our greatest measure of courage. In fact, Brene, you say vulnerability is so powerful that we would not have innovation, we would not have creativity without vulnerability? No, because, you know, people are like, oh, you know, I hear a lot like, oh, you know, nice talk, lady, I don't do vulnerability. The thing is that vulnerability, we don't want to do vulnerability because we think, God, that's weakness, that's fear, that's, you know, those are, that's shame, that's disappointment. It's everything I don't want to experience. So we go out in the world and we armor up and we put on this armor of, hey, get her done, suck it up, soldier on. The problem is that when we don't open ourselves up to vulnerability, we actually don't end up minimizing the hard things. But what we do do is we push away all of these major life experiences that we are desperate for more of. Vulnerability is the birthplace of love, joy, creativity, innovation, empathy, trust, the things that we all ache for. And so without those, you know, our lives feel, you know, those are the things that give meaning to our lives. And so I think we've underestimated the power of vulnerability in our lives and that, you know, if we reduce it down to the very bottom line, here's what I think. Connection with other people is why we're here. It's what gives purpose and meaning to our lives. And you can't have real connection with people without vulnerability. I can't connect with you without being willing to show up and be seen by you. And so that's where the shame piece comes in play, that we have our hand on that, you know, that arena door and we want to try something. Shame is that the shame is the gremlins that say, hey, don't go in that arena. You're the only one that, you know, doesn't have an MBA. You're the only one who didn't finish college. Hey, these guys are all, you know, in their 30s and from Silicon Valley. You're 60 and you live in Wyoming. You can't, you, you have no contribution here. You know, shame are those never enough gremlins, those things that tell us we're not good enough, perfect enough, whatever. And so to me... If we want to be more courageous, we have to start to embrace our vulnerability and understand it's going to mean showing up and getting our butt kicks on, you know, okay. on occasion. And we also have to get clear about the messages and expectations that hold us back. You know, and sometimes, unfortunately, what I have found are the messages and expectations that hold us back are being, you know, leveled at us by people who really care about us. You know, sometimes that retired 65-year-old guy who wants to, you know, think about this new business or wants to maybe get into doing this, it feels vulnerable and 
in a culture that really thinks that all the good ideas are you know gone after 30, which in my research, I actually found the exact opposite. Well, Brene, it, it really it really is interesting, and uh, we're a little bit vulnerable on time now, so we've got to wrap it up there. The book is a great read. It's called Daring Greatly, and it really make you reexamine a lot of long-held beliefs and help you make some pretty important changes in your life, your relationship, and yourself. What a great talk with Brene Brown. Next, big-time wrestler Jake the Snake Roberts on his biggest match ever against depression, abuse, and addiction. This is Growing Boulder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by Winter Park's new Crosby Wellness Center at the Center for Health and Well-Being. More than just a gym, it features unique medically integrated programs, activities for all ages and skill levels, and free group exercise classes with memberships. More at CrosbyWellnessCenter.org. Stay connected to Growing Boulder for daily doses of hope, inspiration, and possibility. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for our latest stories and motivational pictures. My guard stood hard when abstract threats to noble, to neglect. Hey everybody, you're listening to Growing Boulder. I'm Bill Schaefer with Mark Middleton. We're about to talk to a guy that many of you will be familiar with. His life has had the highest of highs, but he's also had to go through some of the deepest of lows. Yeah, we love his story because it is a story of survival, of victory over addiction, of failing health, and just about anything else you can imagine. His name is Aurelian Smith, but you know him much better as the former WWE superstar, Jake the Snake Roberts. Let's find out more as we say hello to the snake. Hey, Jake, how are you? I'm a lovely man out here in L.A. Uh, walking towards a uh, documercial shoot for for DDP Yoga. So it's interesting. I love the traffic out here. You betcha. <laughs> well, there you go. That's putting a positive spin on L.A. Uh, you know, Jake, you, you were amazing. That's the only one I can think of, man. <laughs> You were amazing in the ring, unpredictable, compelling, relentless. You were a superstar, but outside the ring, it really wasn't going so well. What was your life like back in the day? Oh, it was it was chaotic, man. Uh, there was so much about me that people didn't know, and I, and I, I made it that way. You know, that's the whole idea of the snake thing was, uh, you know, you put a snake in bag and carry that around, and most people don't want to talk to you, you know? <laughs> So I was hiding my whole life. You know, I went through a lot of stuff as a child. It, it was dark and ugly and hurtful and shameful. And uh, I didn't want people to know about me. So, you know, getting the ring, I was able to forget that little kid that was left behind and uh, all of his problems and trash and garbage and BS and uh, become something that I wasn't. So I was living a lie the whole time. And uh, living a lie has its prices, man. Uh, sooner or later, reality is going to catch up with you, and you're going to try to live that, and you can't. It, it, because it, I was medicating myself the whole time. You know, it, it is tough. You alluded to, to your upbringing. I know your dad and your two brothers were also wrestlers. We don't really need to get into the stuff with your dad other than that was not a good situation. No. But, you know, with, with wrestling being such a big part of the family, Jake, was it the wrestling lifestyle that was part of what dragged you down? Or was it, you know, No, just... it wasn't. See, my dad did not raise me. You know, um, I, was, um, I was on the outside. Uh, my brother and sister... Uh, Rock and Robin and uh, Sam Houston, they were raised by him. I wasn't. And uh, I never wanted to be a wrestler. Uh, I hated wrestling. Uh, growing up, I always wanted to blame wrestling for the reason that my father never wanted me. And uh, that's the way a kid feels, you know. You're left behind. And uh, so as time went on, I, I got finished out of high school, man. I was going to become an architect, you know. That was my dream. And I went to visit him and I'm like, you know, hey, I just want you to know I finished high school. First one in the family ever do so, and I'm going to college. And he just basically looked at me and said, well, I hope you don't want any money. He's like, do you give me anything yet? Nothing. Okay, so what do, you, what do you think I want now? And all I wanted from him was him to say, you know, I'm proud of you, and I'm glad you're my son. You know, but that wasn't that wasn't available. And uh, a few nights later, with youth and ignorance in, in hand, uh, 
my brain kicked in and I was at a wrestling show watching him and my brain said, Jill, do you want your dad to love you? Then what you need to do is you need to go up, jump in that ring and beat up one of them wrestlers. God, alcohol will get you killed. I should have known that then. But uh, I went up there and I challenged the guy and he uh, really, really took it to me, man. He knew who I was or he'd probably kill me, but he damn near did anyway. And uh, I crawled back to the locker room. My father was standing there, all seven foot and 425 pounds of him, and uh, looked at me and said I was gutless. He was ashamed of me. I would never amount to anything. And uh, at that point, looking back, I, I traded my soul to the devil right then, right then, because I made up my mind right then that come hell or high water, I was going to do whatever it took to shove that statement of his up his rear end. And I, I spent 37 years doing that. But in that 37 years, the things that I sacrificed, um, family, children, life, um, a clear head, a clean body, all those things were thrown to the side. Whatever it took, I would do it to achieve that goal. And uh, that goal, bottom line, was unachievable. And uh, part of that's my fault because I'll, I'll tell you something about life, man. You know, this isn't the Brady Bunch and this isn't uh, Leave it to Beaver. Uh, we go through things as, as kids out here, there's hell. But it's what you do with those things, what you do with it. The ugly parts, you know, you can stuff them and hide them and medicate them, or you can accept it for what it is and move on. You know, uh, it's not my right to choose how somebody loves me. He didn't do it the right way for sure, but you know, I can't let that be the tool or be the reason that I fail. And uh, as, as successful as I was, I was failing the whole time, you know, because as a kid, I remember saying to myself, I'll never treat my kids the way my dad treated me and be damned if I didn't do it because I sacrificed that family unit. I didn't raise my children. Thank God I married two women, you know, that are a bad choice <laughs> that uh, took care of the kids that I fathered. All right, you Jake, know, Jake, uh, let, Jake, let's turn this story around now because we've, we've only got a few minutes left. And, folks, this is yeah. Jake the Snake Roberts who is sharing with you, you know, the painful details of his life. And we want to complete the story arc here because there has been a resurrection. Tell us how you got oh, hooked up with, yeah. with Diamond Dallas Page and what's your life like now? That is awesome, man. I'm clean and sober now for over four months. Um, got Scott Hall living with us now. He's been clean and sober 40, 40 days, you know, and uh, it's the longest he's ever been in his life. And uh, each morning I wake up, man, I'm ready to kick the world's butt. I feel wonderful. My children gave me the greatest gift at Thanksgiving when they called me. And they said, you know, Dad, we were proud of you for all the stuff you accomplished in the ring, but we're more proud of you today than we've ever been in our lives. And my daughter came out and stayed a week with me, man, and I'm helping her with her EMS. And you talk about ironic, man. She is the head of the largest rehab in the world. It's for all the troops. And now I'm getting involved with those guys, you know, because they're suffering some of the same stuff that I did. You know, when you become dependent upon a drug, and drug being for them, or anything, is that, that adrenaline rush you get when you're on point, man, when... When you get that gun in your hand and your next step might be your last, man, well, that's what, that's what I was living through, too, you know. It's that adrenaline thing that you become addicted to, and that's what you live off of. And then these four guys coming back from war, man, they've taken a beating and they've been under fire, and then all of a sudden you turn out into a pasture and sit down go play. It's not that way. But uh, working with DDP Yoga, man, it's helped me get my mind right, my body right. I've lost 65 pounds. I am kicking some serious ass, man. And, you know... <laughs> There ain't nothing that can turn me down or turn me away now, man. I feel so positive about everything. I don't let the little stuff get to me. It is what it is. You got to move on. I just want people out there, no matter where you're at in your life, what you're dealing with, if Jake the Snake Roberts can come out of the crap that I came through, what's your damned excuse? Was it hard, Jake, to, to decide to do this in public? I know Diamond Dallas is doing a documentary on you. You can see it on your website, part of it. It's awesome. You know, in the last 30 seconds or so, was that tough to decide to do? It, 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 was, it was tough, you know. But, you know, man, when, when you get as far down as I was, and really, I'll tell you, I would wake up in the morning and be mad that I was still alive. 
when I would hear that some other wrestler had died, I'd get pissed off and I'd be jealous of the fact that he had died and not me. So <laughs> whatever it was, Dallas unlocked that warrior or whatever was left of him and at least, you know, he challenged me. And it takes a unique relationship. It takes a unique person in Dallas to be able to unlock this in people. And he's doing it, man. He's got a magic wand somewhere, I know. Well, he's got a way but, of he's got a way of finding the good that's inside of somebody and focusing on that, Jake. And and we've only scratched the surface of Jake's story. Very compelling. You can hear what kind of person he is. His heart is on his sleeve. You hear what he's been through, what he's overcome, and what his message is. So go check him out because it's really interesting, this documentary, because if this guy can do it, as he said, all of us can. Check him out at jakethesnakeroberts.com. Thanks so much, Jake, for uh, sharing your story. Up next, you want to live a long and active life? We'll meet a man who says the secret is to never leave the playground. This is Growing Boulder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by the UCF College of Medicine, where physicians, scientists, and teachers are discovering innovative solutions for today's medical challenges and bringing them to you. Learn more about the college's physician practice at ucfhealth.com. Subscribe to Growing Boulder magazine, now with more information, articles, and photos than ever before. This quarterly publication is unlike any other, filled with the kind of inspiration you need to live your life to the fullest. More information at growingbolder.com slash subscribe. Welcome back. You, of course, are listening to Growing Boulder Radio. I'm Mark Middleton. That guy over there is Billy Schaefer. And we're going to talk for just a few minutes, folks, about what one guy believes is the closest thing yet to the fountain of youth. And his theory, his philosophy is gaining attention and support from some pretty big brains all across the country. And you know what I learned about this guy, Mark? What's that? It's not really a fountain. It's actually a playground. You see, uh, he, yeah, it's, it's, he believes the secret to staying vibrant, steady, and strong are hidden in the activities that we all used to do as a child. And he's developed a program that no matter where you are in your physical journey, you can increase your balance, your stability, and your coordination. Now, the program is called Never Leave the Playground. And our guest is its 72-year-old success story, Mr. Stephen Jepson. Hey, Stephen, you there? Yes, I am. Good morning, guys. Where do, is it? Is this the seventy-two-year-old Stephen Jepson? I'm too young to be seventy-two. Where did you get that energy from? Well, by remaining active and, and staying, um, keeping moving, it keeps you vital. Hey, look, we all know we should exercise, Stephen. There isn't a person out there that disagrees with you. But why don't we? Well, I, I try not to use the word exercise with what I do because back when we were kids on the playground, we were laughing and, and joyous, and there were no frowns on anybody's faces like, uh, like the people out uh, running, uh, practicing for some running event or something. In other words, we, we played real hard, but it was fun, and that's what I do. I have these little games that train people's balance, stability, and coordination, their right and left hand, and I keep it fun. And, Stephen, we touched on it a little bit in the intro when we said your program is called Never Leave the the Playground. What kinds of things do you do, and what kind of things do you recommend that we do? Well, I, I, I uh, set my tightrope up, uh, pulled it tight for the first time yesterday, and I'm, I'm, I've just learned to juggle clubs on a balance board, but I do not encourage anybody that starts with my program to start with that. We start with real simple things like picking marbles up with your toes and then dropping them into a bowl or uh, throwing a ball to the ground and catching it with the right and left hand or making, maybe making a target. Real simple, easy-to-do things. I don't want people to be daunted or to be, uh, to be turned off. And I, and I don't use the word exercise. I try to think of it as more as playing. So what, how did you stumble across this? Where did this idea first come into your head? Um, I never really quit. Uh, I, but from the time I've been a child, I've always sought out uh, fun games to play. Uh, frequently in class, I'll say to students, anybody here ever been bored? And of course, all the hands go up. And then I say, Life is boring to boring people, and, and since they're all pretty smart people, they, they realize the, import, the importance of that. And so 
um, from the time I've been a little child, I have always made up games and things to do while I was waiting for something else to happen. You've got your thoughts. You've got your, you can stand on one foot. Uh, just yesterday, I, uh, I stood on one foot, and I uh, juggled the, mo- the longest that I have with one eye covered. And that's a pretty <laughs> tough thing to do. But that's not where we start. We start with easy stuff. Folks, we're talking to 72-year-old Stephen Jepson, who is a former college professor, a, a fine artist of some renown, a, a ceramic uh, artist whose works are in the Smithsonian, who, who's created this new program that he says has two main characteristics and benefits for all of us. Number one, uh, it's going to prevent or delay the onset of dementia. And number two, it's going to keep you from falling. So the secret to to never losing your brain and never losing your balance, Stephen says, is is one in the same thing. Uh, and Stephen, I, I'm most intrigued by, the, by, by what you say working your less dominant hand or your feet can do for your brain. How does that build neural pathways? Well, everything, every movement that we make, is routed to the brain. Everything from picking your nose and scratching your toes to, to uh, brain surgery, everything we do, every movement, physical movement we make, is routed through the brain. And so if you're sitting on a couch and doing almost nothing and your life is sedentary, you're not using that noggin very much. But if you're up moving around, if you're picking up marbles with your toes, if you're bouncing a ball, now you've got a lot more brain activity, and it's, bra- it's, it's this movement and activity stuff that grows new brain cells. You're actually saying and expecting us to believe that we don't have to spend a ton of money on a gym membership. Not at all. We don't Not have, at all. We don't have you to can... spend $100 a month on supplements. No. No, no, no. I, no I, I don't think so. I think that if we all know where food is. It's around the perimeter of the store, not down through the middle. And if you eat food, uh, vegetables and, and fruit and, and uh, protein and, and, uh, and uh, those fats that are good for the brain and body, that's all you need to do. But, but you would really got to keep moving. That's, that's, that is, you, you fellows do a beautiful job of describing what I do. And it is the fountain of youth to keep moving, to keep, to keep active. Well, you know, you know, we did uh, produce a video that does describe what Stephen does, and we encourage you folks to check it out at growingbolder.com. And, and I mentioned that, Stephen, not to pat ourselves on the back for doing the video, but because it was viewed so many times that you have gotten feedback from, you know, from some of the top thinkers uh, in this field uh, all over the world, uh, academic people, researchers. What are they telling you about what you're doing? Do, do they say you're a kook or do they say that you're on to something? It, it, uh, it, it gives me chills or makes a hair on my neck stand up. I just wrote to the author of The End of Illness, David B. Agus, and he was uh, Steve Jobs' uh, oncologist. He's one of the t- I saw him about two or three weeks ago on um, uh, Farid Zakaria on uh, CNN on, on Sunday morning. I watch that guy regularly. Anyway, he had this fellow on there for about 20 minutes talking about health. And so I immediately bought the book, and I'm reading it. And I, but I wrote to him, and I sent him the link you just described to me. And he sent me back this beautiful message. He's to the, um, I could look it up on my computer, but we don't really have time for that. But it, to, to paraphrase it, he said, you're right on track. Keep up the good work. Doctor, uh, and then he just signed it, David. Hey, this is incredible. You've got us hooked. We're, we're fascinated. So now what's the first step? Where do we start? How do the people listening, what, what should we do first? Um, well, uh, think about what they can do to train, to train their feet. There, most of us are, have pretty not very well-trained feet. And uh, <clears throat> to sit in a chair and pick up marbles with your toes and drop them in a bowl or to stretch a towel out on the floor away from you as you're sitting and then to, to pick that up with your toes and begin to pull it towards you and bunch it up. Uh, with both feet, you want to train both feet. Whatever you train one foot to do, you train the other. And this causes it to be stored and, and used in lots of different places in the brain. Folks, the brain is plastic. We've learned that uh, when you uh, get older, you can, in fact, develop new uh, brain cells or, more accurately, new neural pathways. And as Stephen is saying, you actually move your feet, and that, uh, that makes your brain better. And, Stephen, in the final 30 seconds, it also can keep us from falling. And, and there is an epidemic of falling in people over the age of 65 and 70, isn't there? Absolutely. And, and it, uh, it has a very bad end result. <clears throat> and what I do... 
these little things that I uh, train the feet to do, little games I play, cause the feet to be accurate and quicker. And just those two things can help uh, uh, prevent a fall. If your feet are accurate and quick, you're going to catch yourself. If you make a little stumble, your feet are going to very quickly recover. And think, folks, if some big corporation or big company invented an exercise program where you're out riding a unicycle or on your skates or bouncing a ball with one hand and catching it with the other or picking up and juggling and learn, wouldn't you do that? Wouldn't that be the most exciting thing you can do in your life? Here's Steven Jepson offering this advice and information for free. Check his video out on Growing Boulder. And for more on Stephen and his plans and his ideas, go to NeverLeaveThePlayground.com. Our thanks to the exciting, motivating, inspiring Stephen Jepson. Boy, yet another great show. This week, wrestler Jake the Snake Roberts rebuilding his life from ruin and NBC's Bob Dotson finding the true stories of America inside the seemingly ordinary among us. Sound familiar? Well, we're not saying he's stealing our mojo, but that's pretty much what Growing Boulder's about. <laughs> and it is a great message, too, and it's one we can all apply to our lives. So make sure you come back next time for more folks out there with great stories to tell. People who will convince you not just to hang on to your dreams, but make them come true. Growing Boulder is a production of Boulder Broadcasting, all rights reserved. This program was recorded live at the studios of WMFE Orlando. It is written and produced by Jill Middleton, Jackie Carlin, Mark Middleton, and Bill Schaefer. Executive producer is Katie Widrick. Technical director is Jason Morrow. Chief audio engineer is Mac Dula. And our most important team member is you. Remember, when it comes to Growing Boulder, it's not about age. It's about attitude. Joe.